You are about to listen to episode one of season one of What Did You Make Me Watch, in which we will be discussing episode one of Band of Brothers, Kurahi. It will contain spoilers. You've been warned. Hello and welcome to What Are You Making Me Watch? I'm Paul Kirkley and I watch telly for a living. And where can we find evidence of that? You can find evidence at uh, radiotimes.com, Doctor Who magazine. I know you have a subscription, Hannah. (laughs) And to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only paid television critic for a national supermarket chain. Who even knew that was a thing? I didn't. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. I also review TV in a professional capacity and sometimes in a less professional capacity. (laughs) And we are friends. Would you say good friends? Friendship status pending. Well, we're currently friends. Let's put it that way. We're going to be putting that to the test by enforced TV viewing. What could possibly go wrong? Because we don't generally like the same stuff, do we? No. I like things that were made in the 1970s in BBC Television Centre. (laughs) (laughs) And I like war dramas and westerns. And if a documentary comes in less than four parts, I'm just not interested. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't do documentaries. I, I just like uh, p- pretending people. <laughs> <laughs> so every podcast series, we're going to pick a season of television that one of us loves and the other has never seen before. For this series, Hannah's done the picking. So what are we going to be watching, Hannah? We're going to be watching Band of Brothers. I mean, how the hell have you never seen Band of Brothers? Cue the podcast. Hello and welcome to episode one of this first series of What Are You Making Me Watch? Exciting times. I'm excited. (laughs) Coming up, we're going to be talking about how in blue blazes Paul's never watched Band of Brothers before, whether he's able to identify anyone in it and whether Sobel's horrifying management style turns out to be a good thing. I'm also talking to historian, author and World War II expert James Holland about how Band of Brothers stacks up against other war dramas and to actor Ben Kaplan about running up that road, running up that hill with no problem. Okay, so this series we are going to be watching HBO's Band of Brothers as it reaches the ripe old age of 20. Here's a little bit about it for you if you don't know. It's based on the book of the same name by Stephen Ambrose, itself based on interviews with men from Easy Company, It was created by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks and it inarguably changed how television could look and who could work for it. Reviewers still get really excited when a Hollywood director makes TV and lots do. Ridley Scott, Steven Soderbergh, David Fincher, all of that started here. Band of Brothers also played a huge role in building HBO's reputation as the home of prestige dramas. So, a big success from the outset, would you say? Seems to have gone well. (laughs) Well, actually, not so much, as the first episode aired in the US on the 9th of September, 2001. And Paul, I don't know if that date is ringing any bells with you. It's certainly near a date that rings a bell. So, two days later, HBO stopped all promotion and viewing figures dwindled. The following year, it was released on DVD, and it was here that the series really found its home, becoming one of the best-selling TV box sets of all time. It won seven Emmys and a Golden Globe, and I could go on, but now seems the time to find out. Paul, in Sweet Baby Jesus, how had you never thought to watch this before? 
Well, you know me. I don't like war films, westerns or gangster movies, which is the point where you normally say, why are we even friends? Yeah, I might get that put on a T-shirt. I don't like things about men being tough. Read, read into that what you, what you will. But no, I, didn't, I don't think I actively avoided it. Was it on what I would then have called normal telly? It was on BBC Two. In fact, the BBC paid a huge amount of money to get a, like a co-producer credit, which enabled right. it to show it on television over here. But it then put it on BBC Two, which was a slightly odd decision. I'd like to think that because I was probably just leaving my 20s that I was out having a wild time and that's why I missed it. But that's probably not the truth. I probably just forgot to look in the Radio Times or something. Well, interestingly, that week, obviously, I wouldn't ordinarily be able to place where I was when Band of Brothers started. But because of what also happened that week, I am. That was actually the week I moved to Cambridge. So I was in the process of moving house that week. It was a historic week all round. Yeah, yeah. It's odd that they choose to remember it for those other things, but... Yes. Should we stop and do a little recap of episode one, which opens with the men of Easy Company preparing to jump behind enemy lines on D-Day until they hear the shout, No jump tonight! Disappointing words to hear in any circumstances. We then go back two years to Camp Tekoa in Georgia, where the men of Easy Company are crawling through innards and gizzards and running whilst vomiting, under the watchful eye of Captain Sobel, who eats fruit really creepily. I mean, I know that's probably the least of his issues, but I didn't want it to go unmentioned. Despite him, or maybe in spite of him, Easy Company shapes up into a fearsome fighting unit, and at the end of the episode, they're back on those planes, ready to take off for D-Day. Sobel's not with them, of course. He's off training priests to jump out of planes, which sounds less like a real job and more like something I listed under my hobbies on my UCAS form because I didn't think smoking pot was what they wanted to hear. Paul, what are you making of it so far? Would it be a bit vanilla to say, oh, I'm really enjoying it? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Tune in next week. I think the first episode, I I was slightly surprised by how almost relaxed it was not it, it just in terms of the format it's very kind of easy I, I think maybe we're used to this uh, sort of rapid cutting hyper plotting these days and it's a very kind of despite the fact that they're going through hell in this training regime it's kind of a quite a relaxed introduction because it is focused quite heavily on just that one thing isn't it really on, on their training so it reminded me a bit of full metal jacket which I've seen once a long time ago and a bit of private benjamin which I've seen loads, <laughs> but again, read into that uh, what you will. And a little bit like when um, Bart and Lisa get sent to Camp Krusty, the uh, <laughs> abandoned mule tannery, where Kent Rockman famously said, I've been to Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan, and I can say without hyperbole that this is a million times worse than all of them put together. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it reminded me of those things. And obviously, because of the build-up to D-Day, I guess what I was struck by is that it's kind of... a prequel to Saving Private Ryan in some ways. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, it's the same guys, but you already knew that. And obviously, they went on to make the Pacific. I like the fact that when they came to England, they were based in the village of Oldbourne in Wiltshire, which I've actually been to. Do you want to know why I've been there, Hannah? Um, Well, I kind of... (laughs) I have this feeling of dread that I already know. Is it something to do with the 1970s television programme? 
<laughs> because they filmed the 1973 Doctor Who classic, The Demons. There, yeah. The place doubling for Oldbourne in this episode is very clearly not Oldbourne, but I don't suppose viewers in Jefferson County will really have picked up on that. It's Hatfield in Hertfordshire was where this oh, was filmed, which is not that far from us. No, it's not. It's, I always have a little thrill when I go under the big tunnel there. <laughs> under the shopping centre on the um... yeah under the shopping centre yeah. yeah on the A1 yeah that's that's Hatfield to me speaking of things getting lost in translation over the Atlantic there's a there, I, there was a brilliant bit where the Cockney soldier comes yeah. in and says and I quote get your mince pies on some of this Jerry Clobber here mate you're having a bath if you think I'm half inch in that which I thought was absolutely wonderful he's about to launch into chim chimney anyway. <laughs> although actually I I do use the expression half inch in um, oh, do you yeah. Do you use the term, get your mince pies on some of this Jerry Clobber? <laughs> well, it depends where I am. To be honest. <laughs> I so. I mean, how much Jerry time... Clobber is around? <laughs> well, you say that, but um, I did a car boot sale once in Milton Keynes, and not at all to diminish the people of Milton Keynes, but it's the only car boot sale I've ever been to where somebody next to us, set up on the table next to us, was selling Nazi memorabilia. Oh, right. Mm. Different time. Speaking of Nazi memorabilia, you like the Nazi... I mean, you like history, don't you, Hannah? <laughs> I bloody love a bit of history, but I have a confession to make. I know you and I are very early in our podcasting relationship, but I have already been cheating on you. What? With another podcaster, I know. Come on, give me the name. To reduce him to a mere podcaster is actually really offensive. I've been talking to the author, historian and World War Two expert... James Holland, who also has a podcast with Al Murray called We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I'm guessing you haven't listened to it, Paul, but it's actually a lot of fun. No, but um, I mean, I'm guessing that he might get one over on me on the history side, but um, let's hear him and find out, shall we? I'm actually guessing, in fact, I know from listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk that you are a Band of Brothers fan. Yes. How do you think it stacks up against other war stuff? Oh, I think it stacks up pretty highly. It, it's it's very, very good. It's very polished. And, you know, a new bar was set with that kind of sort of gritty realism of frontline action with Saving Private Ryan. Now, you can sort of argue the toss over the historical accuracy of Saving Private Ryan, even the, the, the sort of iconic 20 minutes opening sequence of on Omaha Beach. But in terms of that sort of portrayal of gritty violence, I think it's it's very, very good. And obviously it's the same team that really that are making Band of Brothers. And it's just it's just second to none. And, you know, as always, of any kind of drama, it's all about the script, isn't it? And the script mm-hmm. is tremendously good, backed up by terrific performances, backed up by absolute amazing attention to detail, historical detail, and conveying a sense of, I think, of, what it was like being in combat in a way that no one's ever really kind of done before or since, I would say, with possible exception of the Pacific. Yeah, I agree. And the Pacific is a very different war, even though it's the same war, technically. So it's a, it is a different kettle of fish. I think it's bleaker on a more individual level. It, it doesn't have that that sense of, of we're a gang in this together. Uh, as Band of uh, Band of Brothers has. So the narrative doesn't quite work, does it, in quite the same way? You, you've got these focus on these three main characters who are all quite separate. Uh, and you don't have that narrative thread of sort of keeping one unit together. Mm. Do you have a favourite character? Yeah, I like, the, I like the guy who drops the helmet. 
I like Ronnie Spears. Oh, that's what I've written on my bit of paper. Well done. Of course, you know, Dick Winters. Can you believe that I actually managed to successfully guess James Holland's favourite Band of Brothers character? Uh, yes. Thanks. <laughs> I never doubted you. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I spoke to him about way more than that. But because we're going to try and do this in a spoiler free fashion, I can't actually play you a lot of that interview yet. But we do yeah. talk about loads of other really interesting stuff. How much accuracy is important in historical stuff. We talk about why Operation Market Garden went wrong. We talked about how the British are represented in this. So that will be coming up in future episodes. So what you're saying is if I'm underperforming, then you will just pull the emergency Holland ripcord, <laughs> bring in your other podcast husband, fine. Push you out of the plane. And yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know how he's going to like me referring to him as my other podcast husband or you referring to him as that. But you agreed to talk to us, James. We Yeah, read the small print. <laughs> Now, I don't know if you've noticed, Paul, you probably have, that obviously there's lots of famous faces in this, but oh, there are actually yes. some super famous faces yes. that are actually in quite minor roles in this. So since Quizzin got us through lockdown, I thought you might like to do a little quiz. Would I ever? Yeah. Is there a jingle? <laughs> no. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I'll make one. Quiz. Okay, you could just do that every time. Yeah. Save me some okay. copyright and stuff. <laughs> Okay, number one, which actor who went on to achieve what's called the Holy Grail of nerddom, that's appearing in Doctor Who, Star Wars and Star Trek, is playing First Sergeant Bill Evans here? I resent the question, but... I tried um... to put it in a way that you'd understand. (laughs) Simon Pegg. It was Simon Pegg. Apparently the Radio Times invented the expression the Holy Grail of Nerd, and it occurred to me that that might actually have been you, was it? Quite possibly it was. <laughs> First big name drop clang of the series, I met Simon Pegg around about that time, and he was with his mum. Oh, they were nice. both lovely. Was yeah. this in a professional capacity or just... <laughs> he knew my friend Steve, so this isn't really helping with denying the Holy, Holy Trinity of Nerddom, but we were at the SFX Weekender, at SXL in London, and Steve worked for SFX magazine, and he said to Simon, come along for a drink, and he did, with his mum. And Shaun of the Dead was just about to come out, so then, obviously, we've never seen him since. I'm thinking they probably want to rename that the Holy Grail of nerddom, extra nerddom, or special nerddom, because it has the fourth plank of having met you in it. Well, the the ninth circle of nerddom. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, number two. Which actor who was nominated for a Best Supporting Oscar in 2014 and a Best Actor Oscar in 2016 couldn't keep his water in his flask, not a euphemism, in this week's episode? Is he Irish? He is a couple of nationalities. Right. Is it? uh, I don't know. I've only got three names written down. That was Michael Fassbender. Oh, of course. No, I had even read that he's in it as well, but I don't don't think I recognised him. Which actor often called Britain's greatest actor by... Stephen Graham. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was just going to credit myself with that, but you clearly agree that is Stephen Graham. Two out of three, Paul. That's not bad going. Nonetheless, your weekend pass is still revoked. Talking of your weekend pass being revoked, let's talk about Sobel, shall we? You know, he is like the living embodiment of the NHS app. Just wandering around, <laughs> shattering dreams for Just no pinging. good reason. 
I don't even know why he even bothered giving out weekend passes. He could have just cut out the middleman and just kept them, couldn't he? Yeah. Because nobody ever got a weekend pass, as far as I'm aware. Of a type, isn't he, that exists in this sort of film. And then I can, or television programme in this case, and I can only assume that's because that is our type. And in his defence, it seems to work. In fact, Nixon calls him a genius at one point because he actually manages to create them all bonded together, even if it is in hatred of him. But David Swimmer, it's interesting for me that you haven't seen this before because it means I can ask about David Swimmer because pretty much anyone who watched it in any way contemporaneously, so, you know, in the first couple of years it came out on box set, even if not on telly, he was playing Ross on Friends at exactly the same time. And I think people really struggled to buy into him in this role. And also there was a kind of level of unnecessary pressure on him almost. As it turns out, he was only really a major role in the first episode. Yeah. Because he was probably, with the exception of Donnie Wahlberg, the only person who was a household name in this at the same time when it started. So I'm interested whether you think that's a part with the distance that's come from him, obviously, having done other things, whether you think in the round is actually a good performance. Well, I, th- I think it's a fantastic performance. I think he does that kind of sadistic bully, but also a sort of impotent rage, isn't it? Because he knows that he's actually hopeless. And so there's a kind of desperation to him. And I think he does that very well. And in some ways, the, the time that's passed is interesting because in some ways it's a big departure from Friends, but lots of people, I think especially... Uh, millennials, if I can group them all together in that horrible way, coming to Friends. I, I get the feeling they seem to have targeted Ross as the kind of bad guy in it anyway, and, and a bit of a, certainly a bit of a dick. A bit right. of a wiener, as they would probably say in, in Friends. <laughs> you know, which, which I don't think is true, by the way, because everyone knows that Phoebe is the real psycho in that group. She's a sociopath. But yeah, so David Trimmer, I think there are times in Friends when... He's kind of on the back foot and he does a whiny, kind of outraged, indignant, you know, screaming from a position of weakness. And I think so there, there's quite a, there's quite a crossover there. Just just pop a monkey on uh, on his shoulder and he's uh, he, <laughs> he could be the same person. I think it's a good performance. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's grown on me over the years. I mean, not to talk about other television while we're talking about this, but we might as well. One of the problems I've had trying to get people into succession is they're like, oh, I just don't like anyone in it. And you're like, that's not the point. And I still think there's an element of trying to override that in your brain, your natural revulsion towards a character. And then actually being able to see anything, find anything good in it, even if the good is that performance. So if if he's loathsome, he's doing a good job, isn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think of the general style bullying as a management style? I know speaking as a centrist dad, (laughs) do you actually think, am I wrong that, that actually it may have worked? Well, I mean, I guess the army uh, and the, the, the military, they only really work on that principle, don't they? And whether that is necessary and I don't have enough experience of it but all military tacticians seem to have decided that this is necessary that you need to be an absolute bastard in order to maintain discipline that's not the way I used to uh, run any team I've managed I I hope because they wouldn't have listened to me anyway somebody somewhere presumably has done an experiment 
and tried being a nice guy, military sort of drill sergeant. Um, I don't know how that works out for them. I, I would like to think if I was had been conscripted, I would respond uh, quite well to it. The good news is you now started doing a podcast with me, Paul. So <laughs> I can be as shouting as I like. <laughs> Okay, you go the full um, Lee Emery in full metal jacket. Yeah, do you know what? I was going to ask you if you had a favourite one and then I thought, look who I'm talking to, but you might actually have a favourite one. A favourite? A favourite shouty sergeant. Are we back to Private Benjamin? Yeah, Al Williams in Private Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) What is the tone of this show? What are they trying to say with it? What's the headline message i presume you mean where does it fall on the war is hell scale of or yes. war is pointless yeah that's right the, i was slightly surprised when the planes were taking off at the end of this episode how stirringly heroic it was played given what we know is about to happen michael Kamen, the composer really goes for that whole aaron copeland fanfare for the common man type heraldry Almost harking back to a kind of Dan Buster's 633 squadron type of heroism. Now, I don't know why that surprised me, because, of course, this is a story about heroes fighting the worst kind of evil. So why wouldn't it salute them like that? And also, we're talking about Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, hardly known for their nihilistic cynicism. I I guess I was just thinking, how knowing how brutal that opening section of Saving Private Ryan is, I sort of assume the angle might be more skewed to the futility of war in the kind of Joseph Heller, Kurt Vonnegut tradition. But so far, at least, I'd say it's not. It's more of a real and genuine salute to heroes. The two are not mutually exclusive, of course, but that that just kind of feels where it's going at the moment. Will I be surprised by where it goes? Well, to avoid talking about spoilers, but yeah, you do get a couple of slightly more cynical views of war directly out of the mouths of some of the characters in this as time goes on. But yeah, I think you're right. But America has a really interesting relationship with World War Two. They call them the greatest generation. Yes. And I think that's because it is probably one of the only wars that America has been involved in that was relatively uncomplicated. And what I mean by uncomplicated, Mm, I mean that there was, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And it was legitimately about stopping the role of something that was wrong as opposed to imposing something on, which if you look at Vietnam or Korea or... And there was actually an end... There was actually an end. There was no end to Korea. There's no end to Vietnam. There's no end to Iraq. They've just sort of limped out of wars. And so I think there is ever a tendency to find heroism in descriptions of war in America. It is in World War Two. So, it, no, it doesn't surprise me at all that this is how... And it, and it comes from Stephen Ambrose originally, and Stephen Ambrose is very... I mean, you might call it sentimental, I don't know sort of idea of America and yeah, what America was or still is or... Yes, very much the American ideal of mm. standing up for, for freedom, isn't it? Yeah. And like I say, Hanks and Spielberg, that that's, you know, you're buying into a certain type of thing there, aren't you? Um, a certain worldview that is uncynical, mm. would you say? Yeah. I think what's interesting about it is that 
initially it didn't do as well here because of the sort of the joke about saving private ryan you know like best personified in the eddie Izzard joke of hi we're the british and the fact that the british had been left out of saving private yeah. ryan and then people watch one or two episodes of this and were like, oh, they're not even going to mention the British again. And you're like, because it's not actually about the British. This is about a group yes. of guys who were American. And it stays quite tightly focused on them rather than the wider war. So I think that actually, to some degree, the assumption that you are saying that people might make about American World War Two drama kind of work to its disadvantage it took a while for people to come around to it and suddenly think oh yeah wait a minute i understand what this is about especially as there's so many british actors playing americans as well which adds that extra level of complexity doesn't it and huge amount of irish actors and although the accents are so sort of universally spot on that it still does surprise me to discover that like people that i did actually just assume were american are actually you know, British or Irish. I'm assuming the guy who, who played the cop Avenabarf Cockney was American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a, a relative of Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was Christian Bale going there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, going method. <laughs> there are no women in this at all. No. Yet. Is that a problem? Is this okay? I mean, obviously we know why. <laughs> well, I can't, yeah, I mean, in the same way, I can't, can't complain that there aren't English people. English people in the 101st Airborne, I can't complain that there aren't women. But what I can say is, I firmly believe, you definitely know this, that I can manage to shoehorn women's history into almost any conversation. <laughs> so every time there is a woman in it, I'm okay. going to see what if I can find something interesting. In fact, I already have spent some time on the phone with an academic to ask them about something that we can talk about for episode oh. four. So, yes. Amazing. My uh, research was... Uh, less thorough. The first thing that came up on Google was that around 400,000 women served in the US Army during World War II, but they weren't using combat, obviously. And uh, 16 women died from enemy fire. It's pretty uh, incredibly low figure. But then, if you're not engaged in combat, I guess that's why. But because it's a true story, I guess they've resisted the temptation to write in some fictional female parts. Quite often how women are written into stuff like this is by having some communication with home, but I just don't think it needed another theatre, as it were. It's, I mean, it's already broad without starting to put flashbacks or, you know, letters from home in yeah. it. But I, I want to thank you, Paul, for playing the role of me in this week's podcast. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to ruin it now. By Where's saying, the women? Where's the women? I'm going to ruin it now by drawing uh, accusations of hashtag male gaze on Twitter, because I'm going to say, Hannah, you've got to admit, in among all the death and terror and bloodshed, there is quite a lot of eye candy in this for you, isn't there? Uh, well, <laughs> not not why I watched it. <laughs> no, no, but it's still a bonus, isn't it? So I just, I mean, I, not that I don't like, enjoy watching lots and lots of men getting all dirty and sweaty <laughs> in a big group, but, you know... Yeah, you've got me, Paul. I, I absolutely love my men covered in chicken. In this. <laughs> Bits of horse. Lovely. I, I mean, I'm not going to ask you if you think you would pass a fitness test now, because I think with the best one in the world, you wouldn't. So I'm going to ask you if you think you would ever have passed one of these fitness tests. I'm slightly insulted um, that you should think that. But no, I don't think I ever would. I think even at school, I, I was one of the weedier boys. 
I find um, that very hard to believe. <laughs> I wasn't a big fan of PE. You know, I, I, I preferred I preferred to be in the library. Were you just sadly kicking a forlorn beanbag around the gym while everybody else was climbing up the ropes? Yeah, well, PE teachers, they, I mean, it's one of my pet peeves, this, but PE teachers never taught you how to do PE, did they? Um, they just basically said, do PE, which is equivalent of a French teacher saying, get changed and talk French. <laughs> we used to have a load of really great PE kit in our school, but we weren't allowed to use it. It was like for special. But oh, yeah. I, I don't well, know. Wall bars were never allowed to come off the wall. No, yeah. no. <laughs> no. We had like loads of proper cricket gear and yet we had pads and stuff and yet we weren't allowed to use them. We, we had to get hammered by a ball. Otherwise, private schools would have nothing to charge for, would they, if we were, we were allowed to use the equipment? Yeah, good point. I mean, to be honest, looking at this, I don't think I could even act being a soldier. I don't think I could even hit the required <laughs> level of fitness to pretend to be in, in easy company, let alone be in easy company. No, I think it would have to be one take. Yeah. And then I'm done. <laughs> well, do you know what? I've been on the phone with someone who knows the answer to how hard that was, and that is the actor Ben Kaplan, who plays Walter Smokey Gordon in Band of Brothers. Actual Ben Kaplan? Actual Ben Kaplan. Okay, let's hear what he's got to say then. In this episode, Ben, you do a lot, and I mean a lot of running. And I'm guessing you did more running than we than we saw on screen because you must have had to do things over and over again. Is this the fittest you've ever been? I'll be honest, we uh, arrived on day one of the kind of Band of Brothers prep when we knew we were going to go off to boot camp for 10 days. And, and I, I looked around uh, at the rest of the cast. A lot of them were American actors who had flown over. And I think... We were all in different stages of fitness at that yeah. time. And I think before we knew what boot camp was going to be, I was a little bit worried because some some of the American actors had kind of got themselves into shape and, and you know, had started you know, going to the gym and, and running a bit. And I don't think I'd done much prep prior to the boot camp period. And, and I think it was on day one that I suddenly realised that maybe I should have started training <laughs> uh, much earlier. And, and I think a lot of us were quite quite shocked because as soon as we arrived at boot camp, we were literally getting up at five o'clock in the morning and running for a, you know five miles, and then coming back, getting changed into uniform, and then going out on and doing kind of exercises all day. I was a machine gunner, so I was carrying quite a lot of heavy equipment. So I think I got fit. I found the running every day really tough. I think we all found it tough. Even the Americans that have been prepping and training found it tough. I think it was just the relentlessness of the the exercises that we were doing for that ten day period. I mean, it was. It was put together to kind of break us and to build us back up again and to make us feel like, you know, what it was like to train as a as a soldier going into, you know, into battle. And, and um, you know, we only did 10 days of it, but it felt like it felt like months. And, you know, we all hit walls for sure. I remember every single one of us at, at some time sort of sat down of an evening and just thought, I don't know how we're going to get through this. And the way we got through through it was to sort of you know literally um help each other through it mm. and that built that spirit of the series so it was a very clever way of of bringing us together and making us feel and think like soldiers and and also creating that kind of brotherhood which i think is so important for a show like this so it worked you know psychologically and physically and mentally on, on a lot of levels so in answer to your question i wasn't fit i don't think I, um, but i think i got fit during those 10 days and then for the next 
how many months of shooting I think we realized that obviously this is very much a physical exercise as well as a kind of you know an acting experience and a, and a, a physical and mental challenge but yeah did a lot of running did a lot of walking a lot of marching I mean you know everything that soldiers have to do to to kind of get prepped to to be in the right state of mind to, to go, go into war I should say running and singing at the same time which just seems brutal Actually, the singing is really important. Uh, it really helps you. Oh, really? I mean, we did, yeah. When, when, when we were at boot camp, I remember that when we were running on those five-mile runs every day, I remember that the singing was the thing that really helped get you through it. Because if you're sort of just silent in your own little, you know, headspace, you, you, you know, you're very aware of how, you know, how tough this is on your physicality. And uh, I think you just feel very alone and you just think, oh, my God, how long left? And whereas the singing part is 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 it's almost like a sort of a, a, um, a way of being able to sort of focus your mind elsewhere. And it's a, it's it is a, an experience that brings you all together. And I actually enjoyed I mean, music. Funnily enough, and singing really got me through boot camp because um, for, for a lot of the other actors, including Scott Grimes, who played Malarkey, in particular, he's a, you know, he loves singing and we used to sing a lot. So we were in the same barracks and we would sit on, you know, when we got on coaches to go to sort of parachute, parachute exercises and, and whatever, we would always be singing. And actually singing was something that really got me through the whole experience. And, and as I say, that kind of cadence was was actually really useful because it, as I say, it really helped, I think, us as a group of people feel like a unit, feeling like that we were doing all of this together mm. as opposed to a lone entity that was just trying to get through what was a very you know, challenging experience. So actually, the, the cadence was great. Do you actually have a scene in this where you get sent to runs by yourself and everybody turns up and runs with you, which is a lovely scene? And yeah, funny enough, I've just been back to that very location. Oh, really? Um, one of the actors, Matthew Leach, who played Talbot, he's um, putting together some some Zoom interviews with some of the the actors from Band of Brothers and bringing some of the writers together and talking about our experience filming different episodes, doing watch-alongs. And he, he asked me if I would be interested in meeting at that location and just filming some footage of me kind of walking it again and yeah. talking about being back at that very location. So, yeah, I mean... I think Gordon, the character I portrayed from a lot of the research that, that I had done, you know, there, there were a lot of things that were against him when he actually signed up for the Airborne. He was colorblind. I think he lied about his colorblindness that would have affected him being able to join. And, mm. you know, so I think they they, they did some um, some work on, on looking at some of the characters within Easy Company that would have found boot camp particularly challenging. Mm. And therefore Gordon was a character that, you know, was then introduced to somebody who was sort of potentially sort of struggling or finding it a little bit difficult to show that kind of conflict with uh, Sobel, who obviously picks out people that are not kind of making the grade. Yeah. So that was, you know, one of those scenes that we filmed and actually, to some extent, incorporates the whole of the series, really, about a guy mm. who's been sent to, to do something as a punishment. And then his mates are like, we're not going to let you do that alone. We're going to, you know, we're going to join you. We're going to help you get it through, get get through it. And as I say, that was kind of our boot camp experience, really. We, we kind of got through it together. Talking about Gordon, we're going to try and do this in a non-spoilery way. So people who haven't seen it. So I won't be able to ask you if you met him. How much of a responsibility does it feel when you play a real person as opposed to playing um, a character? Yeah, I mean, massive. It's a massive responsibility. I've done it a few times and it never gets any easier because you sort of feel the pressure. You feel like there's there's already rules in place because, you know, you're playing a real person who's got a history and a family. And I think on this project, we already felt the responsibility of just telling real people's stories. 
obviously the people involved in the show, Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, you know, bring a, pu- a certain responsibility anyway mm-hmm. because they're massive personalities in Hollywood. So we already knew this was going to be a massive production in terms of, you know, um, the directors and producers that were attached. But then on top of that, I think that this is very much a part of American history. The book was, you know, very, uh, was very well respected. We knew that we were portraying real people. We knew that we were telling their stories. We knew that we really wanted to try and get it right, which is why, as I was saying about boot camp, that was a really, even though it was a difficult experience, it was really necessary to do a show like this to make sure that we were really doing it for real. Mm. So it really like we knew what we were doing and we were, you know, performing those um, exercises in, 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 in the right kind of way and being able to handle a weapon and, and you know, and all of that kind of stuff. So that, that was almost essential. But then on top of that, you know, we were doing a lot of the research. So we got sent a lot of the original interviews that Stephen Ambrose had um, had done with the uh, the original members of Easy Company. And I get, got sent all the transcripts. I had, a, you know, a massive pile of, of paperwork to go through. So in a way, it was it was great because you had a, a sort of template to work from. And I got a lot of that detail from from reading that material Um so there was a lot of material to be able to feed the the kind of costume and, and makeup department, and so a lot of that detail was. And we've had we had a lot of photographic evidence as well. Mm. So I was able to go and say this is a photograph of you know Gordon in Carantan, and you can see what he's wearing and where he's wearing his grenades on on his on his uniform and, and how, what they had you know taped to their helmets when they jumped. And so that was really really useful. Yeah. Um, from a, from a detail point of view, but then you know when you know that you're going to meet either the people that you are portraying or their families, you feel an extra responsibility to make sure that you get it right because you want to respect the the families and the the person you're portraying. So it's a massive pressure. But I, having done it before, I've always thought that you'll just feed all the information in as an actor, get gather as much as you can so that you can be as detailed as you you want to be which you know I'm one of those actors having worked with people like Mike Lee I've worked Mm. in detail a lot and and I love that part of the process but I also feel that I have to be able to sort of bring myself to it as well and therefore it's going to be an interpretation of that character as opposed to an impersonation and um, and and so I never give myself a hard time in terms of thinking am I you know Am I really getting exactly how this man walked and moved and spoke? I mean, obviously, the accents were very important. You know, a lot of that detail was really important. But then I, I, I decided that I was going to bring, you know, a lot of what I, how I responded to the material to the part. And I mean, I remember talking to um, uh, Phil Alden Robinson, who came in sort of later to, he, he wasn't originally I don't think um, supposed to direct episode one. And so he came a little late and I remember he met with all the, all the kind of the, the main cast one by one. And I remember saying to him, I think he was like, you know, tell me about Gordon. And I was like, I can tell you all sorts of things about Walter Smokey Gordon, but actually as a, as an actor playing this, I feel like I want to bring some humanity to this role. I want to show what it's like for normal people to step up and do extraordinary things. And what happens when, you know, you suddenly jump out of a plane behind enemy lines and you suddenly go, you know, I've done all this training, but now it's all gone out the window because I've got people firing at me and all I need to do is stay alive and, you know, look after my buddy. And so there was a lot of wanting to just kind of bring a lot of the kind of human element, you know, to certainly as far as I was concerned to this particular project. So I didn't give myself that much pressure, although I remember the first time Gordon's family turned up on set and, and I think I just got a tap on the shoulder and said, come with me and, there they were and I, I kind of wandered over and started speaking to them and it was a very emotional experience they were very emotional I was very emotional and 
you know, we, we are very good friends. We're still very good friends. And, and um, you know, it, it was a big responsibility, but they were just, and including the, you know, the veterans, they were just so happy that we were, we were making the show and that we were telling their story. They, they just couldn't believe it. They, they were sort of over the moon. So, you know, we were like, you know, we were like um, uh, sort of stars to them. Not, I don't mean acting stars, but we were stars because we were portraying and, and, you know, ultimately allowing the legacy of their, of their stories to, to kind of live on. So, so there was a real mutual respect, I think, between us all. And, um, you know, meeting the veterans was amazing and very, very uh, important. And a lot of them didn't want to talk about their experiences firsthand. And sometimes it was quite difficult because you were sitting with them and you could tell that they were holding a huge amount and very yeah. emotionally attached to, you know, the fact that we were in uniform or that they'd arrived on the set and suddenly it was so lifelike they couldn't, you know, get out the car and, so, you know, we had to tread kind of carefully, but, you know, there was a responsibility, but it was a responsibility that I kind of, uh, I relished rather than allowed to kind of, you know, get in the way and, and hinder me. Given that you were quite early on in your career at this stage, and I'm guessing you had to go through a lot of auditions, at what point did you sort of allow yourself to believe, oh, oh shit, I might be working with Steven Spielberg? Um, I don't think I did <laughs> for quite a long time. And in fact, um, I mean, I, I, you know, it was it was 20, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago now that we actually shot the show. And, um, you know, some of my memories are a bit hazy, but I, I just I remember I remember the audition period. I remember my initial audition with the American casting directors and then being recalled and told that I was going to be meeting Tom Hanks. And that experience in itself was very odd, going into a hotel room with Tom Hanks, who was in the middle of filming Castaway and didn't look anything like the Tom mm. Hanks that we know and love from, you know, Big. And he had this massive beard yeah. and he had weight. And I was kind of doing a double take, you know, where is Tom Hanks? Because there were all these people and I couldn't quite... You know, That's quite literally what they tell you never to do, go into a go into a hotel room with a strange-looking man yeah. you've never met before. Yeah, indeed. Although, I, you know, I knew the prize at the end of it was, you know... <laughs> was amazing so going in and I mean a very nerve-wracking experience I remember being outside the room thinking you know I've got to try and just calm myself and go I've just got to go in and do my best and not be be kind of in awe of you know the fact that I'm auditioning for Tom Hanks and he was great as an actor he was able to put put me at ease and I felt like I did a good reading and and we had a good chat and he was very complimentary and so I knew it had gone well and then there was this kind of wait where you just hope i got another call to say you know you're going to have another meeting with one of the other executive producers they're going to send you some other material to look at and i went in and did that and you know that went well and so i think i only had three meetings in all but even when i got the call i remember i I was i think i was working in a bar in st john's wood and i got a call to say you know you've been offered the job and i was like wow this is unbelievable and then what what to do with that information oh and you're off to boot camp in 10 days time (laughs) i don't even know what to do with that information i think i met one of the other actors and we were sent our jump boots in advance because we had to wear them in they were really really tough you know standard jump boots so i remember we got sent them and then we had to kind of walk around in them so i remember sort of in my everyday life putting these on these jump boots and kind of trying to wear them in (laughs) Um, which was, again, a, a very odd experience, having not actually started the job. And it was only really, I think, even when I turned up on that first day, meeting other actors, it was very hard to kind of get your head around what we were about to embark on. But I do remember that when we were driven to boot camp on on the the coach, all these military um, personnel sort of started shouting us and shouting at us and calling us our character names. And, you know, we were suddenly in uniform and we weren't allowed to take 
you know, anything. Uh, we were they were very strict about what we were allowed to mm. take to be with us. And I just remember there was complete silence on this coach. I mean, nobody said a word for an hour and a bit. Just nobody quite knew what we were letting ourselves in into. And then when we arrived at boot camp, we went into this kind of massive mess hall and we were sort of instructed where to stand. And then Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg appeared. <laughs> this very strange mix of what am I doing? I'm in uniform. I'm being shouted at as Gordon. And Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks are over there. And Tom Hanks is making this amazing speech about what we're about to embark on. And, you know, one day a, a kid's going to come up to you in an airport somewhere and say, you portrayed my, you know, my grandfather mm. in that joke, band of brothers. And, you know, it was kind of the enormity of what we were about to do suddenly hit. And then Steven Spielberg appeared in front of me, put his hand out and said, hey, I'm Steven. And I, I remember just the only thing that went through my mind was, of course, you're Steven. Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. I've been watching your movie since I was you know, a teenager yeah. and I'm a massive fan of, of your work. And I couldn't sort of break cover and say, oh, yeah, hi, I'm Ben. And I'm so excited to be in the show. I sort of had to, you know, maintain my uh, my. Um, you know, serious uh, stance. And, and and I think it hit me then, you know, Steven Spielberg shaking my hand saying, you know, good luck. I'm, I'm great to have you on board. And I was like, this is going to be one of those dream experiences. And I just need to make sure that I enjoy every minute of it. Yeah. And once we got back to sets and started seeing the sets that were built for, you know, for Bastogne, for instance, when they, you know, shipped over sort of kind of 200 trees from Belgium and covered it in snow. I mean, I think that that's when it really started to hit. The, the sets were so incredible and so lifelike that, you know, you suddenly realise, well, I am on what I think at the time was the most expensive TV series ever made. And this is a real privilege and, and we're going to give it our best shot and, and, and enjoy every second, you know. I've got one more question for you, Ben. The other thing that people know you really well for is called The Midwife. And I think, therefore, that means that you've appeared on the TV series that's probably the most man-heavy TV series there's ever been and one of the most female-heavy series that there's ever been. And I wondered, is there an obvious different experience in those two experiences about working almost exclusively with men and almost exclusively with women? The obvious answer is that, obviously, when we were doing Band of Brothers, there was a lot of testosterone flying around. There were times when I had to sort of, you know, I mean, I I, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed every second of it. But there were times as a British actor working on that kind of show with all that testosterone flying around, I had to sort of take myself away and just kind of go and sit in the corner somewhere quiet and just kind of go... (laughs) And breathe because it was kind of it was quite intense, you yeah. know. And it, as I say, there was a lot of banter. And when when we when we get together, it almost comes straight back, and yeah. we have kind of banter going on. Call the midwife was just like a family. I mean, you know, we, we similarly we didn't know, even though Band of Brothers, you know, was expensive, and we knew that as I say, the people attached to it were um, very high profile, kind of Hollywood legends you still don't know you're going to have a massive success on your hands until, mm. you know, you actually, you know, start to see the footage in it and you, you put it all together. And similarly with Call the Midwife, I mean, it was on a completely different scale, but we didn't know it was going to be the huge hit that it's become. But I think it's just about making sure you get the right mix of people. You you, you know, you cast well, the writing's really good. You've got to have certain things in the mix for it to mm. succeed. And I think, you know, Band of Brothers, we had great writing. It was really well cast, brilliantly cast. You know, the way that we we, we prepped it was was absolutely spot on and, and, you know, created that kind of brotherhood that I was talking about. And similarly with Call the Midwife from sort of day one, it was a brilliant cast, really well cast. Everyone got on very well. I mean, Miranda and I, from the moment we kind of met and started rehearsing, there was a chemistry, which I think 
made those characters kind of jump off the page. Thanks ever so much, Ben. Pleasure. As soon as somebody asked me about Band of Brothers, because I've been, you know, we've been talking about it such a long time. Yeah. There's such a lot of stuff that comes out. And actually, funnily enough, since we've been revisiting it last year, um, more memories come out and it's really nice to revisit it. I'm so proud. Well, I'm so proud of both of the shows, but, you know, Band of Brothers is one of those shows that, say, 20 years down the line, people are still so enthusiastic about it because, you know, they they love it and they watch it time and time again. And and they come up and say it's my favourite TV series of all time. So it's just nice to be able to revisit that and to be able to kind of talk about how we, you know, how we put it all together. So lovely to meet you and thank you for having me on. Wasn't that Ben Kaplan lovely? He was. Interesting. He yeah. was. I really liked talking yeah. to him. I'd like to hear more Ben Kaplan in my life. Uh, well, I mean, I've got, his, I've got his details. I'll see if I can arrange it. But okay, um, yeah, we'll wait and see. He's a busy man. You're bound to, he's bound to come into your orbit from something else that he's doing. Probably, hopefully, yeah. So have you heard that we might not be the only Band of Brothers podcast in existence? Yeah, I have. And it has only underpinned my idea that this was an excellent idea. Yeah. That some guy, I mean, I've never heard of him, but some guy called Tom Hanks is also doing some Band of Brothers 20-year related stuff. I mean... I, to be honest, I don't think people need to go and listen to that when they can just get all of the top quality stuff here. I don't get your cons- own ideas, Tom Hanks. <laughs> he must have seen must that say- tweet that we did that didn't do very well on Twitter. Almost certainly he did. Yeah. He's, he's seen the tweet. He says, I'm going to get some of that sweet Band of Brothers podcast action for myself. Um, <laughs> he's, he's parking his uh, Sherman tanks on our lawn now. <laughs> He's not the only person, obviously, along with us, who is doing some Band of Brothers at 20 content, because you'll have heard Ben Kaplan say in that interview that Matthew Leach, who plays Floyd Talbot in Band of Brothers, has also been doing some stuff. And do you want to know some good news, Paul? What? Yeah, please. I do, yeah. We're going to be talking to him next week. Yes! More actor chat. More actor chat. Plus, James Holland will be back. I'll be rubbing your nose in it, and we're going to be talking about whether historical accuracy actually does matter. Well, in just marry this. James Holland. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, next week, episode two, here comes D-Day. Here comes D-Day. Now, I've got an advantage over Hanks, because my USP of not having seen Band of Brothers, he, he can't hope to compete with that, can he? No, he can't. No. I know. And, and I have tits. Yep, so... Who's the real loser? (laughs) You've been listening to What Are You Making Me Watch? which is written, produced and edited by Hannah Dunleavy and Paul Kirkley. Our theme tune, Silver and Gold, is from Audio Hub. You can follow us on Twitter at MakeMeWatchPod or you can follow Paul where he is at PR Kirkley. The rest of the time he can be found on the pages of Waitrose Weekend, Classic Pop and Doctor Who magazine, among many other things. Among several other things. He's also written two books about Doctor Who. What are they called, mate? They're called um, Space Helmet for a Cow 1 and Space Helmet for a Cow 2. <laughs> two, two space, two cow. <laughs> yeah, two helmets. <laughs> <laughs> And you can find Hannah on Twitter at that Dunleavy or in her day job talking about women's rights and a lot more besides at the Standard Issue podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>